Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Welcome to the Lit Poetry Podcast Season 2. My name is James Laidler, Australian poet, writer and your host. And what a treat we've got in store for you today, with not one but two poems from the internationally acclaimed poet Kevin Hart. In today's episode, we'll be peeling back the citrusy skin of life in an attempt to get to what many consider to be the sweet, juicy heart of reality, the experience of love and connection in life. In our discussion today, love, passion, belonging, peace, and the experience of everyday joy and celebration will become a major focus as we read and analyse one of Kevin Hart's newest poems, Four Clementines. But this foray into a world of gentle bliss will be juxtaposed with another of Kevin Hart's poems from further back in his career, one entitled The Beast which takes us to a far darker and more disturbing place, where lust and unbridled desire hold sway deep over the poem's narrator. And so between these two extremes, between the experience of love and lust, many interesting questions will emerge. And thankfully, we have Kevin Hart himself with us today on the podcast to help us search for some answers. So let's take a listen to the first poem, shall we? May I present you with Four Clementines by Kevin Hart. Four Clementines by Kevin Hart. Four Clementines are shining on a sill remembering Toronto. Sunlight stretching idly over their skin. Their leaves flared green. Chill morning light on terracotta roofs with hidden gardens, tendrils of coffee steam. And then a scattering of little bells that lightly sing Maria's name three times. And then Cecilia's, Pietro's too. Is there a world as sweet as this small one? This cosmos opened with a fingernail. A dozen cushions, water, oil, and sun. I quickly taste the south in winter light, magician of shadows. This is Trastevere, old town of tombs and bells where nothing's lost, but changes, settles, links with something new, and slowly starts again to seek the sun. Is this the clemency long promised, these paths that wind around each other like old vines, these cobblestones, these pink and yellow houses, my new young wife, Asleep in the next room, her bougainvillea hair across wild sheets. This music in the air that men call light. It is as though a sunrise comes to fill each word that is whispered, murmured, half pronounced, between long kisses. Ah, you're waking, love. See this? I've brought you coffee with thick cream. 
and little clementines peeled in a bowl. So welcome back to the Lit Poetry Podcast. Kevin Hart is a prodigious figure on the international intellectual landscape. His multi-award winning poetry, collected in over a dozen poetry collections and chapbooks of poetry dating back to 1978, is matched only by his output as an internationally recognised critic and philosopher. He has published a highly respected study of Samuel Johnson, and the philosopher Maurice Blanchant. Having lectured in Australia for many years, he is now the Edwin B. Kyle Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia in the USA. Kevin Hart's poetry is a rare gift. His poetry brings together deep contemplation and worldly experience, and the ability to give oneself up to the unknowable, the abstract and the spiritual. His poems are like bold songs singing the open heart and open mind. Hart's poetry is lucid and accessible while giving voice to rich depths where mystery and being coalesce. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Kevin Hart to the podcast. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks so much. It's it's fantastic to have you on the show. I've been an admirer of your poetry for some time and I've also read uh, collections of uh, poems in some anthologies as well that you've put together, which have been very interesting over the years. Kevin, I might just start with, could you, if you could tell our audience a little bit about yourself? And in particular, I suppose, I think in our audience, we have a, a lot of budding uh, poets about where did your interest in poetry come from and, and um, what sort of uh, fuels that passion for poetry? Sure. Um, Well, I was born in London, in England, uh, in the east end of London, in a very rough neighbourhood of working class parents. Uh, There was a perpetual rumour of violence around the streets, and sometimes a lot more than a rumour, there was actual violence that was seen. When I think back on it, um, the neighbourhood in which I grew up was almost Dickensian, Uh, very poor slums. And we still had horses coming down the street, bringing milk and such things. England took a long, long time to recover from the austerities of the Second World War. And my parents were still on um, stamps, uh, food stamps, by the time I was a, a boy. So it took a long time for England to get back. I went to a very harsh school nearby where corporal punishment was um, routinely used and the only redeeming feature of that school I think was that Pilgrim's Progress by Bunyan was read to us and the Bible was read to us not with any religious interest but pretty much for its prose the King James Version I grew up on its cadences its stories and so on and the hymns that we sang in church again there's nothing religious in this it was just simply part of growing up in England at the time. I was thought to be um, mentally challenged 
I was always at the bottom of the class. I couldn't do mathematics. I couldn't write well. Um, the headmaster of the school came to see my parents and wanted me removed from the school. And my parents tried to do that, but it didn't work out, so I had to continue. And so, what with the violence at school and my complete inability to succeed academically, I think in retrospect that I developed a very strong interior life. And I relied mostly upon that. I was extremely silent, uncommunicative child. And then when I was about 11, my parents uh, migrated to Australia. They went to Brisbane. And that was a shock from which I don't think I've ever recovered. It, <laughs> <laughs> the heat, for one thing, was quite astounding. And the different culture was really remarkable. And it was when I went into high school, which I was almost debarred from, um, I, in the first weeks of high school, I had a very strange experience in a class where it felt as though some rusted uh, window in my brain was suddenly yanked open. Mm. And I went from being the bottom of the class, completely inert and unteachable, to being at the top of the class in a very short time. Mm. My parents were astonished by this, as were my teachers. And then I immediately, upon this happening, this, this awakening, this transformation, I started to search out poems and read them, gulp them down, and write them. And that was about when I was 13. So I started reading and writing poems when I was about 13. And that's never gone away. It's been a constant stream since then. Mm. So basically, the onset of, around the onset of puberty was the time when this door opened uh, for you. Right. Well, you know, well, sexuality had emerged before then, maybe a couple of years before. So it wasn't actually the, the birth of, of puberty. It was something after that and was, was really quite mysterious. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. I find it interesting when you're talking about your um, upbringing and it sounds really difficult and, and Spartan in, in many ways. And was that is that that sort of upbringing partly a catalyst to to move into poetry like when when you feel like some doors are closed um and you can't you said you didn't talk much um or interact much so it was were words and literature and poetry was that an avenue because you said your interior life was um very rich but is that does that actually reflect the environment um that you came out of well, I think what happened is that I unknowingly developed a huge reservoir of feeling when I was a child, which I couldn't articulate, and which later came to go into the poetry. Uh, and also, in a way, it kept my childhood and a number of the positive and negative things we associate with childhood almost pristine. Yes. And when I came to write, they were very vivid impressions. So you, so it's been a reservoir for you to, to draw upon in your, your own uh, writing? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it doesn't always appear autobiographically. Yes. The strength of the emotion is always there. Um, and I, I think in many ways I should be thankful for the rather horrid childhood that I experienced because it gave me that. Yeah, I think that's often the ironic thing about uh, people who do write and write poetry or um, prose is that they often have a story like that that they 
that sort of uh, nurtures and fertilizes their their um their discourse in the world. Uh, which takes me to the poem, which I think is interesting because I actually had a question about it because in Four Clementines, which we um, just listened to, I think the landscape, so you, you describe your upbringing and how that has affected your development as a writer. We're at a different, different, very different stage of your life, clearly, in this poem. And there is certainly a lot of reference to landscape. Um, the Italian streets, streets, and they're described as vines that, that, that you know, wrap around each other and there's a sense of history um, and it's really, really positive, I think. Um, can you? So that's a, a sharp contrast to, to what you're describing in your early years. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that, that idea of landscape and maybe its influence um, comes through uh, in the experience that you're describing in Four Clementines. Yeah, sure. Well, the setting of the poem was the honeymoon of my second marriage in Trastevere, just on the other side of the, the Tiber in Rome, which is a wonderful place. I strongly recommend to anyone to go there for a while. A really delightful town with all of the many great things that we associate with Italian culture. Um, and of course, the the spark for the poem was a, a number of clementines that we kept on the sill. We, we put it in the apartment we had, and there were always clementines around. Um, the landscape, one of the things which is striking about Italian landscape is that nothing is torn down. Mm. Things are just built on top of other things. So almost every edifice you see has got uh, an ancient, a medieval, an early modern, a Victorian and so forth component to it. Um, and this is so unlike my experience, or certainly of Australian culture, mm. but more particularly of American culture, where the American response is if something is old or is not liked anymore or is disapproved of in a moral or political way, that you tear it down. Mm. And I much prefer, I must say, this um, older, classical and indeed Catholic way of thinking about how to join the new to the old. So we just don't start completely new each time, mm. some Calvinistic way, which is so common in the United States, but you build upon what you have and you develop it in new directions. Yeah, because that a sense of appreciation and gratitude and joy comes through in that reflection of place, yeah. um, which is uh, which I think is interesting because you you went to Australia now you're in in America. Is that something that you see? Certainly, in different cultures, uh, people growing up in different cultures have different access to at different levels to the landscape around them, and it certainly has a very um, strong influence on the way that how they're shaped as people. That's true. Yeah. So, do you have any more comments about that sort of idea? Or it's funny. I think it's the landscape, to be sure, um, but also how one's body feels in it, the response one has to one's body as an external thing, but also one's lived experience of one's own body. And there are some parts of the world where I think the body is more in tune with the landscape mm. than in other places. And I've noticed this in myself. I never felt particularly at home in that way in Britain. Um, I did in Melbourne, where I lived, to, to a great extent. And I do in central Virginia, where I, I live now. And of course, in Italy, it's very easy to feel Yes, yeah, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I know as a, as an Australian living here, I think there's a 
a trouble in trying to reconcile the landscape um, to your own re- reality and, and with, the, with the history that we have. It's, um, and, and a lot of Australians don't really probably reflect on or even think about it a lot of the time. Um, and other people have access to a very different experience. I just think it's a very interesting um, area of thought. Just thinking elsewise about the poem, so there's a few things I wanted to ask you about. So in particular, so I really love the poem. I think it's beautiful. It's really tender and gentle. The word delight sort of comes to my to my mind. Um, and for uh, the audience that may not be aware, Clementine is a type of mandarin, I, I think. It's probably best That's to... Right. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so what I'm thinking is that I get this notion that, that small things... Um, in the midst of a um, of your uh, marriage, can enrich a, enrich a life. That it's a, a poem about celebration, um, about the sort of humble manifestations that can take um, stage in your life and, and, and give it that sort of um, that real depth of uh, enjoyment. But I suppose, do you want to talk a little bit about that? But I also have this que- question about there seems to be because there's this notion that you're thinking about your beloved, so your wife. Um, and there's this loving connection there. But ironically, unlike the Western notion, I think, of, of you know, that we obsess about relationships, they become everything. There seems to be more like a sacramental feeling of, of a celebration of life that spills over into the outside world, that's not just contained within the relationship, that you're more at one with things that are around you. So it sounds like the relationship or the, that moment in time is enhancing the world you're in, which I think is quite a um, uh, an unusual idea for our uh, for our times. I think it goes against probably the the popular notion of romantic love. Sure, I mean there's, there's two things I suppose that come immediately to mind. One is of course when one's in love, especially in the first stages of love, everything is magical. It's just wonderful. What could be bad? The other thing is more generally that I'm Catholic, so I tend to see the world sacramentally. And to see the world sacramentally is to see the spiritual involved in the sensual, that they're not separate things, that they they are actually one. Um, In terms of the small things that you notice in the poem, which which is quite true, I tend to think that a lot of poetry is harboring small things and frail things that we might not otherwise notice or over, we might overlook, bypass, reduce, and so on. The poetry keeps these things in being, as it were, keeps them before us. In the hurry of life, they will just be passed over. But in the hurry of life, we miss life. That would be the problem. And poetry is there in part to keep that before us. Yeah, so the poem sort of Im, Im, embodies um, in the world around it these these access to these emotions and feelings and experiences that you that are readily there, but we just ignore by and large in our early burly of life. That's entirely right. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's that's why uh, it's interesting because you you would say that a poem like this um, is delicate and gentle. It's a celebration of love. But I actually, in a poem like this, actually see it as quite a radical thing because it's making people stop and say, okay, look at the world around you, celebrate what is there. And that's actually quite a radical thought, perhaps. Would you agree with that or what do you think? Yes, I would. I mean, 
One of the hardest things to do in life, and if you want to think about it this way, certainly one of the most, um, one of those which goes to the roots of life, namely being radical, is a close and loving attention to things. Mm. Not just a looking at them, but a, a suspension of the gaze before them, a contemplative gaze before them, where one is elevated, as it were, in the consideration of them. This is something that we, we're not trained to do in school. We're not trained to do it anywhere in life, but it is in many ways what gives us the life which we treasure. Yeah, yeah, I think I very much agree with that. Um, and it is something that seems to be ne- largely neglected in our culture. Another question, uh, with the, now I'm not sure if I've got this right or not, I might be overanalyzing it, but the word Clementine fruit and the peeling back of layers seems to me to connect we use the word clemency you got a line in there about clemency is let's see where it is oh yeah is this the clemency long promise those paths that wind around each other um and earlier you talk about this cosmos being opened with a fingernail which is a very evocative beautiful um and i can't help but think of you know in that moment i'm thinking of a mandarin and the simple beauty of a mandarin and particularly that sort of um almost anticipation gentle antiseptic sort of cleansing citrus yes. smell that comes from it and opens and there's a it, it's almost yeah maybe it's almost sacramental in in the way that you think about the catholic church and the, the sense and the smells and something happening do you want to talk a little bit about that and am i making this connection is it actually there is that word actually intentionally used and, and what does the mercy of you know you know, mercy is implied by clemency what 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 were you meaning um Right. No, I think you're very astute in seeing what you see. Um, I pass from Clementine to clemency. Um, it's the clemency, I suppose, of the possibility of a second go at life in a second marriage and of a whole world, a cosmos, if you like, being able to be opened and lived in and enjoyed and explored. So um, you open up the Clementine and you see a whole world there, different segments of it, with that freshness and the Italian clementines are really something else. The, the, the smell is extraordinary. So what do you do with a clementine? You see all of the possibilities in it. And of course, it's something you share. If there's two people and one clementine, you break it into segments and you share it. And so it's the clemency, the mercy of another opportunity to live richly. Yeah, I think that's what I was saying. I, I love that idea of the segments and that they're shared and given because um, I think the poem talks to me about how joy can't be contained in the individual. It's it, it, the notion of, of healthy, good love is this sharing. It must be shared, um, which I think when we get to the next poem, we're going to sort of uh, contrast with this one. There is a very different uh, focus going on and perhaps one of the things you could argue is that the big fundamental difference is there is a sharing in this love whereas the, the next poem there is a type of love but it's a self-consuming insular obsession perhaps yeah yep sure no doubt okay well why don't we um transition into the next poem i'll play it now um and then we'll see where that takes us with our thinking and discussion yep sure The Beast by Kevin Hart 
Whatever it is you've given me, it's something I cannot control. Something wild pouring inside me. An animal swung by the tail and thrown inside a cage. All day I feel its claws, its burning moods. It's broken all I own and makes me live in a country lit only by storms. Or sits up late with me in a room pierced by the purest music. A wolf and a lamb in one. The taste of honey and gall. I've done nothing, yet this thing hunts me from within and my body aches as if rubbed with crushed glass. It has no grace, no manners. I've tried to reason, but it backs off into a corner, snarling. And yet, it's made me know the strangeness of the seed when the tree inside begins to kick the river's longing, when it feels the ocean's pull. I've tried to feed it, but it grows daily, and when I starve it, I feel it scratching my heart. You've given me this animal you've bred. Tell me, can it be tamed? I cannot live with it or bear to let it go. Already I love it, even its claws. So welcome back. Now this poem is an interesting one because I think I um, uh, dragged it out of some archives that perhaps you'd uh, long forgotten, Kevin. Um, that's not like the impression I got. It was certainly uh, in a very obscure um, collect anthology, I think mainly of women writers. Um, and I, I, I'm trying to recall exactly, but I find it a fascinating poem and perhaps it surprised you when I, when I did um, find it and then uh, and perhaps it comes from a long time ago, I'm not sure. But so it would be really interesting just to begin with, just to talk about the context. Where, where did this poem come from? Um, what are your memories of it? Uh, yeah. Very good questions. I've been pondering this uh, ever since you were decided to, to focus on this poem, which I'd excluded from, I think, my selected poems. Um, and I've had an interesting experience in, in reading it over the last few days. I, as far as I can tell, I wrote it in 1981 or 1982. So that, 40 years ago. I can't remember the exact occasion. It was, I dare say, some romantic relationship that went wrong. Um, but I can't remember anything more than, than that. Uh, and the, the image came to me of the difference between a human being and a beast in the um, classical uh, understanding of that distinction. Uh, human beings are animals, of course, but We've always tried to distinguish ourselves, rightly or wrongly, from beasts. There's something untamed about the beast in the Western thought, something violent about it. Um, the wild beasts of the arena, of the amphitheatre, and so on. So this seemed to me to be a good um, image for animal passions that seem to come from outside and just attack us. And that strange sense that we have with these passions where we're deeply attracted to them, we're compelled by them, and repulsed by them, which is what happens, I think, in states of fascination. 
And one of the things that happens, particularly in the early stages of romantic liaisons, is that we're fascinated by the other person. And this fascination has to change at some stage. And sometimes it never goes away. Sometimes you can just be fascinated by a person, even if the relationship never works out. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're touching upon a core experience that uh, a lot of people experience. But I think the poem works on a level because it names uh, probably an emotional landscape that people are aware of, but we often don't we don't um, name in our in ourselves that there that there can be these tensions. Um, and actually, I, I am aware of this poem because a friend who is a uh, counsellor um, gave it to me. Uh, and I know that he uses it regularly with with uh, young men in particular. And I think it's actually, a, it's very useful for those men because it allows them to say, well, I've got a universal, I'm experiencing something here that, and struggling with things that are universal, um, part of the human condition perhaps. And uh, and so it's probably a way into discussion and into acknowledgement for, uh, for some of those men. So um, I think that's why I find it really fascinating yeah, no, it's, it's just wonderful to hear that the poem might be being used to uh, help people to uh, a better sense of uh, selfhood or understanding their feelings. That's that's really heartening. Yeah, I think it is. And I think, I wonder if that's part of the, the function that poetry actually plays. And sometimes people draw an allegiance to a particular poem because it gives them access to things that they need to think about and they need to feel um, and it allows them to feel like they're not alone in, in certain experiences. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. I suppose the interesting thing about this poem, there's a, there's a few things. One is you use the word you. So, yeah, the reference to you I find fascinating. Uh, could you sort of unpack that notion for us? I think if memory serves me, it, it was the girl concern. Ah, Okay. Um, but it does have a spiritual element, perhaps, namely it's about psychic growth, the growth of, of being a human, um, that coming to terms with these passions that traverse one, especially when one's in one's 20s, um, teens and 20s. Mm. Also, I suppose, a poem which is about the kind of growth that one undergoes when one realises that one has missed matched oneself romantically and it's just not work out you have to come to terms with that and move on yeah well that's that makes a lot of sense to me um and of course the connection with the other poem that we've we've read here is they're very different and they talk about you know expressions of love or one seems to be really healthy and um, centered and um peaceful even and the other one is like turbulent and disturbed what is it about love gone wrong in this the, the beast one is it around that notion that a self-focus or an insular turning in can be the, one of the problems in looking for love or is there something else at play in this poem i know these ideas are a little bit loose and fluid i'm just trying to work my way through them i think it's the you know, when you become attracted to another person, and sometimes not not the right person for you, it's as though you're overcome with some kind of um, uh, group of feelings, mm. which remind you of the animal nature of being human, and can be so violent that they dislocate yourself from your normal life almost entirely. 
you can't overcome them. You can't put them in some different compartment and get on with your day. You're ravaged by them. And it's not as though you want them to be taken away. There is a, a great attraction and almost a pleasure, a painful pleasure in, in that. Um, so it is, I suppose, about um, this violent appearance of, of sexual energy within oneself, more than sexual energy, romantic energy. Uh, and that you can't control it. It's got to traverse you until mm. it's done. I think that's what I take from the poem. But there's a really interesting part of the poem too where it talks about, and yet it, it made me know the strangeness of the seed when the tree inside begins to kick the river's longing. So the flip side is that this, this human felt passion uh, that people can be consumed with really can have important function in human creativity and life and you know that desire well placed seems like you're pointing towards something very important there um yeah i think that's the element of growth that mm. the experience of it is positive and negative but in dealing with those different vectors of, of, of positivity and negativity so that's how we start to grow as human beings so we, we grow in this case from um, the seed and the river approaching slowly winding down so that it approaches the sea Well, Kevin, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, and you're actually the first po uh, poet I've had where I've actually done two poems, um, which was a very enjoyable. If you, you can look up at those and have a look at the videos attached to those poems on the Lit Poetry um, YouTube channel. And I think that sort of enhances the experience. Um, I suppose, look, the, the way that lit, lit Poetry is working is that, you know, I teach poetry and I... Uh, the problem I, ha I see is that increasingly young people are struggling to engage with poetry and the idea is to give them other avenues into it. Um, ultimately, just to be reading words off the page as I think is the most rewarding way, but sometimes there needs to be a, a, a first sort of experience that is a bit more caters for the sensory needs of, the, of, of modern um, young people uh, and can compete with uh, <laughs> the many things vying for their attention. So, I think you're right. That, that's absolutely right. It's amazing how many younger people and their teachers are just scared stiff of poetry. Oh, it's incredible. And, mm. I don't know what one has to do to, um, to break down that sense of fear and almost panic that, that, that occurs when you see words on a page which don't mm. go all the way to the right-hand side. Yeah, and it's such a tragedy in my mind because in the space of a, a very short lesson, you can chart a lot of territory with kids and you can give them the capacity to ponder and think around just a few words. You know, you don't crowd them out with a whole volume of words. It's just there's a, there's a simple approach and you can see the spark sort of light up in them when, when you give them access to that experience. Um, I, I, I think so. I mean, if we could only drop the vocabulary which comes immediately to hand of difficult or complex, mm. all of that language, and replace it 
with a vocabulary of mysterious, inviting, rich, mm. yes. then we, we might change how poetry is received. Yeah, and give kids the permission to get things wrong, but to voice themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when I think of myself, I mean, I read certain poems when I was 13 or 14, and I've read them all my life, and my experience of them has deepened and extended, mm. and I certainly don't hold the same interpretations of them, if you want to think in those terms, that I did when I was really young. But they've travelled with me all my life. I couldn't mm. imagine living without them. Yeah, and I've had a similar experience. And you just you wish that you wish that for other other people. I think. So it's time for us to draw this week's episode to a close. I hope you enjoyed this week's interview. Remember to subscribe to our channel and to smash that like button. Have a great week and I'll see you next time for another episode of the Lit Poetry Podcast. We'll finish by listening one more time to both poems. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next week. Four Clementines by Kevin Hart. Four Clementines are shining on a sill, remembering Toronto. Sunlight stretching idly over their skin, their leaves flared green. Chill morning light on terracotta roofs with hidden gardens, tendrils of coffee steam. And then a scattering of little bells that lightly sing Maria's name three times. And then Cecilia's, Pietro's too. Is there a world as sweet as this small one? This cosmos opened with a fingernail. A dozen cushions, water, oil, and sun. I quickly taste the south in winter light. Magician of shadows. This is Trastevere. Old town of tombs and bells where nothing's lost. But changes, settles, links with something new and slowly starts again to seek the sun. Is this the clemency long promised? These paths that wind around each other like old vines, these cobblestones, these pink and yellow houses. My new young wife, asleep in the next room, her bougainvillea hair across wild sheets. This music in the air that men call light. It is as though a sunrise comes to fill each word that is whispered, murmured, half pronounced, between long kisses. Ah, you're waking, love. See this? I've brought you coffee with thick cream and little clementines peeled in a bowl. Something wild pouring inside me, 
an animal swung by the tail and thrown inside a cage. All day I feel its claws, its burning moods. It's broken all I own and makes me live in a country lit only by storms. Or sits up late with me in a room pierced by the purest music. A wolf and a lamb in one. The taste of honey and gall. I've done nothing, yet this thing hunts me from within and my body aches as if rubbed with crushed glass. It has no grace, no manners. I've tried to reason, but it backs off into a corner, snarling. And yet, it's made me know the strangeness of the seed when the tree inside begins to kick the river's longing, when it feels the ocean's pull. I've tried to feed it, but it grows daily, and when I starve it, I feel it scratching my heart. You've given me this animal you've bred. Tell me, can it be tamed? I cannot live with it, or bear to let it go. Already I love it, even its claws. been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.